Mm-hmm. Boy, you got to try that Dear Evan Hansen, boy. It is catchy. Woof. Where did I hear that? Did you play a song for me in a previous episode, or you just sent me a link to a video or something? Uh, I sent you the animatic for anybody have a map. Oh, there you go. And, and to, then just two seconds ago, two seconds you got ago, a to a YouTube video with some people singing it. it <laughs> I don't want to say this. You have to appreciate how much I absolutely adore this particular song and many songs from this musical, Dear Evan Hansen. But there is something about the cadence, the chord progression and the changes. It reminds me a little bit of like, what? A late nineties ad for feminine health. There's something, (laughs) (laughs) it's got that sort of Shania Twain cadence. Uh, Maybe. You know, there's that, okay. There's that one cadence that got real popular that I feel like got popularized by, um, Shania Twain. You know that? With the little, with the little lilt. I'm familiar enough with uh, Shania Twain's body of work to pin that down. I, well, I mean, I do, it does sound familiar. I haven't heard the song. It was it heavily sounds... featured in a, in a commercial for probably food. And uh, it's, it's just this little like four or five note, this little cadence. And in the commercial for food, it goes something like, let's see. Our heart to yours. Uh huh. It's got a little bit of that, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but all that aside, my God, it's so catchy. I, I was playing it today on guitar, and it's super annoying because it's in like, I think it's in like it's like G sharp, which is so not fun to play in. So you're playing like you're playing like a G sharp. You're playing like a, like a B, a C, an F sharp major seventh it's just not mm-hmm. you want to jangle real hard on that song but it's like it's all like super annoying bar co- chords unless you you know put a capo on a capo's a lie john i'm not gonna put a capo on my guitar well, it's not a lie it's not yeah. a lie but it's a, it's a you know it's a it's a not a crutch that's ableist it's uh mm-hmm. it's a it's a capo it looks stupid mm-hmm. my seagull looks so cool without a capo on it i'll bet you can see all, you can see all the birds can, <laughs> can you just tell me what this uh what this thing uh, dear Evan Hansen is about yeah um I'm still in the first act I haven't earned the second act yet <laughs> Shut up. it's the thing you do some people scald their balls you listen to the first act of a I need to be punished no <laughs> you, you're, you're you're implicit flying monkeys come out oh wow some people really like to explain things why don't you just listen to it the proper way it's like that's not how you give advice you don't give advice by saying just go listen to this you say this is a di- Hamilton is a complicated text and it may not be up to everybody to, to sit. And I mean, do you feel like you grok the entire story, seeing it live once? I, I'm not. I, I just flying asked you monkeys, what the thing John. You've got flying monkeys. You implicitly I, I, encourage flying the flying monkeys, monkeys. Don't care how you listen to Dear Yes, they, your flying monkeys care about everything. Your flying monkeys are so. always there. They're there to just just pop their little their little flying monkey heads with little crowns on it. Just pop up and like, man, John was right. My flying monkeys are all boomerang monkeys. They come from me. Oh, you feel that? I think, you know, you know what? You're that kind of guy, though. You're I'm the, very surprised that someone like you would make a mistake like that. Who, who, who shall rid me of this meddlesome monk, says John Syracuse. Mm. And there's a, there's a lot of monk killing going on from the monk monkeys. Anyway, <sighs> what, what the heck is it about? It's about... One sentence summary. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, no spoilers, because I'm not to the second act yet. Um, right. But it's, uh, no, it's about a kid with extreme social anxiety... Mm-hmm. who is starting his i think senior year of high school and he has he's a, like ridiculously 
very bad just dealing with people. And he happens to have a broken arm in a cast. And without uh, too many spoilers, the, the way it gets portrayed to people is it's this kind of tale about social media and young people and like what it does to us. But it's also just, um, you know, it's got nice, lots of nice little twists and turns. But yeah, the nut of it is it's this, it's this kid, Evan, who has a broken arm and has to go to school. And, you know, he's, he kind of sort of becomes friends with this kid named Connor and it becomes complicated. And I don't want to say any more than that. All right. So why are there five moms in this music video? Two of the moms are from the Broadway company and two of the moms are from the touring company. But are they in in this thing, in this musical, does this person just have one mom? Yeah. So the, the musical starts with uh, there's some talking and then the first this is the first song in the musical. So it's a good place to start. But don't go to the second act until you've earned it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the musical starts. Well, with the, I, well can yeah. you tell me how by listening to the first act, you have not earned the second act? Like, do you, do you have to repeat the first act? Put a, put a fork in that, because I want to talk about that. All right. Okay, remind me of that. Um, it's first day of school, and uh, we, we meet Evan and his mom. And the mom is saying, you know, you know Evan, you, you're supposed to do this therapy where you write letters to yourself and tell yourself, like, positive messages. So his therapist wants him to write letters to himself. And he's like, oh, I don't know, I'm not very into this, and I don't want to go to school. And And as the conversation is going nowhere, she starts the main part of this song, which is like, oh, great, you know, another awkward conversation ends in disaster. You know, I'm trying so hard to do this, and it's so hard to do. I don't know how to is do she, this. Is she a single mom? I think so. Um, yeah. And does anybody have a map? Can anybody tell me how the hell mm-hmm. to do yeah. this? Right. Get the gist of the song. Yeah, well, yeah. And then you cut to Connor's family on the other side of the stage. First day of school, Connor's a stoner kid. He's got a sister, a dad, and a mom. And how oh, Connor's probably high, da 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 da, and that's 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 the setup. Is that it starts with these oh, so two, moms. two moms? There's the mom of the yeah, anxious Evan kid and, and Connor's mom. Yeah, right. Exactly. So they're both having problems, and they're singing the same song. And, back then, and, and then they sing and they harmonize, and it's and it's kind of like it. it's got a little bit of a oh, it's got a little uh, a delay in it. It's really nice. So then they have the four moms. It's just the two moms double. It's like yeah, it's like the four tenors except milfs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Milf Island. Three tenors, wasn't it? How many tenors were there? <laughs> well, it depends. How many how you count? Uh, Pavarotti count as two? Well, there's 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 Pavarotti and there's uh Domingo and the other guy. No, you got Placido Domingo, you got mm-hmm. uh pa- Pavarotti, and you got uh what Puccini? What's the third guy's name? <laughs> Al Pacino? I don't know. Um yeah, so they do these, you know, this is the thing they do now with musicals that's kind of cool kind of interesting which is they sort of um you know shows like hamilton and i'm sure others before that i'm sure this goes back to, at least to wicked is like you know using social media to keep people interested in this and talking about it mm-hmm. and the super fans in the stands have a way of you know getting excited and so all these broadway shows have youtube channels where they'll you know release um secondary material I'm sure you've seen this. You've seen this with Ham- well, maybe, maybe you haven't seen this with Hamilton. But people covering the songs. There's a thing called Hamel Drop, where there's like the, the mixtape and the Hamel Drops, which are all these like uh, different like new versions of the songs. There's a version. Hamel Drop sounds like a QAnon thing. <laughs> <laughs> the Hamel Drop is coming. Seven meats, three cheeses. Watch the water. white-haired senator from Arizona. We'll wait for other mm-hmm. instructions. Um, Hamilton, but the, uh, the mixtapes and stuff are cool. There's one, there's a really good one on Spotify. That's a bunch of the Angelica's singing burn. Uh, that's really good. The one with the letters that mm-hmm. sounds like the Smiths. 
Yep. Not Angelica, sorry. Uh, Eliza. Uh, Eliza, yep. Eliza's songs sound a lot like Morrissey, if you really think about it. Yeah. I'm singing the second. So, um, what was your what was your remark? Uh, earning the second act? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. What does it take to earn the second act? How does that work? What does that mean? I don't know. Something, there's something, I mean, to be honest, the way it worked was, I, I, I really, you know how I am. Right. That's why we have the program. Mm-hmm. You know, part of it is like, I don't sit down. I rarely sit down and listen to an album released in the last 20 years. <laughs> you all you the listen way. to the first 10 minutes of uh, first 10 seconds of yeah, each track. That's you know what, what kind of song it is. I'm riding on that right button. I'm, I'm done, ready to go to the next song. I want to hear, you know, get the gist, mm, which yeah. John Roderick loves. Yeah. I'm going to say that like, did uh, that's a question for me. So this, this we're referring to is a story where you were listening to a new album from your friend, John he, Roderick. What he had, he had like, um, somewhere above demos around like kind of like rough edits. Like, so it was basically what was going to become putting the days to bed. And, uh, and he would, you know, he'd share this and you know, I'm sitting at his dinner table and he's like, okay, on these headphones, I want, I want you to listen to this. Well, that's yeah, really so good. He's, the, he's there in the room with you. He's so watching, you're doing he's staring this in front at me of the entire him. time. In yeah. front of him. And, and what you would proceed to do is listen to the beginning of each track before going to the next track, right? Well, the beginning. I mean, I'd listen, I'd listen like a minute and a half sometimes. I, I, the, it's the 120 minutes rule from when I was in college, which is when my friends and I would, would watch 120 minutes. The rule was it was a song that we had heard before and didn't like we could fast forward through it. And it was a song we hadn't heard, even if it was a goth song. We had to listen <laughs> through at least one verse and at least one chorus. And then we'd vote, the three of us, whether so you, to fast forward. You hadn't forward. earned the right to skip. Yeah. You got to earn. Well, that's right. That's right. You can't make a snap judgment like that. You got to listen to at least 90 seconds. Uh, In the case of Hamilton, something was telling me that there was a lot to this as I would listen to it. Mm -hmm. And I think this part of like some part, middle part of my brain was figuring out that a lot of this was connected thematically. And there were like little light motifs. And I think probably at least one time I started into the second act and I was like, you know, I I haven't earned this yet. I I need to become super acquainted with the first act first. I mean... If that's if that's what works for you, I just feel like uh, you don't uh, until you've heard the whole thing through. It's hard to know how all the pieces fit together. So maybe repeating the first act, like you don't know if you're getting what you're going to need. Are you going to are you going to have a small bag packed for the second act? Like right. are you going to have everything you need for the second act? Or maybe you are preparing for a second act that's never going to come, and the second act that comes is not what you expected at all, and you spent all that time and deep, uh, you know, becoming invested in the first act in a particular way, but you don't even know what the second act is yet. I feel like. You yeah. got to go through once to to know the the lay of the land, and then you can sort of start establishing base camps at various elevations. I'm like mixing a lot of metaphors here. No, you're not. That's fine. This is actually a um, a really good reconcilable differences topic because it does bring up something I've kind of meant to explore with you. Like I realized a long time ago that you and I differ on this, and it's kind of a funny bit we do where like I'll start a movie and I might watch it later and I might not. But you do something, on the one hand, we do know that the Syracuse method for almost anything is part two, watch it all the way through. Part one is decide that you're going to watch it. And the thing that interests me, whether that's with Maniac or with any variety of things that are, you know, let's say C minus and higher properties by the time you've watched it all the way through. I'm intrigued by the fact that it feels like once you set yourself to watching, uh, say, a limited edition, like a one season TV series, it seems like from what you tell me anyway, you very rarely stop after say one, two, three episodes. It seems like you set yourself to saying, this is a thing that I'm going to do and you stick it all the way through. Even if it's something that I would imagine you didn't think was that great. Am I getting that right? It seems like you, you set yourself, you say, this is a game I'm going to play. This is a series I'm going to watch. And it seems like you pretty much always plow all the way through. 
But I'm not, see, I'm not opposed to it. Like, I, it, you know, I will bail. Like, my big thing is starting from the beginning. I don't want to start in the middle. But, mm-hmm. you know, if I start from the beginning. And <laughs> if I'd start I started with Act 2, that would seem weird. Right. If I start, start from the beginning and it doesn't grab me or doesn't keep me watching, then I'll stop and I have no problem with that. Um, But to your point, uh, that rarely happens. And I think it's mostly because I know enough about what I think I'm going to like. And, you know, I can I can figure out. Who else is watching the show? What do they say about what I know about them? So on and so forth. That I tend not to start something that I probably won't like enough mm-hmm. to finish. Like I will. My technique for doing this is not starting something until I have a critical mass of information that makes me think I'm going to like it. Like so, I don't know how mm-hmm. long people were talking about Jack Ryan, and I was like, well, before anyone talked about it, I'm like, well, that's not for me because I'm not into that. And lots of people were talking about it. I'm like, yeah, it's probably still not for me. But then eventually, a critical mass of people talking about Jack Ryan, and I've seen enough opinions and. I piece, you know, it's not just the opinions, it's who they come from. And it's, you know, it's just a feeling that I have. It's like, you'll probably like it enough to watch it. So I started watching it and I did like it enough to watch it. Right. So I feel mm-hmm. like maybe I'm just good at knowing whether I will care for something. But like I said, with Man- Maniac, if, if episode two hadn't switched to Emma Stone's storyline and had that dramatic turn, mm-hmm. I was fully going to bail on it. And in fact, as I said, I bailed on the first episode halfway through, partly because I was tired, partly because mm-hmm. I was like, I don't, this is not doing anything for me. But I came back to it just because I felt like you didn't even make it through the first episode. Like, that's not really fair. You should at least get through that. Like, so I do feel some responsibility to like kind of like your 120 minutes rule to give it some kind of chance. And so if it's if like a, you know, a 10 episode season, at least finish the first episode. Like, you can't say, oh, I, I watched the first five minutes. I didn't like it. Like, that's not you don't mm-hmm. know whether you yeah. like it or not. That's also, I think, um, maybe even an unusually good example where one could watch that first episode I, th- I think one could watch that first episode and excluding the, I think, f- fairly good, very good cliffhanger at the end. You can watch that first episode and go, oh, this is going to be a, a wackadoo Legion like mix them up. And I, if I'm really in the mood for that, like that would be OK. But a la, uh, again, our, our beloved uh, leftovers watching that second episode makes you go, oh, this is actually pretty interesting. Are they going to mix up the storytelling and the choices? It, you know, it's not going to be. It's not going to be thematically or what's the word I'm looking for. It's not going to be linear in the sense of it's going to be the same, same people in the same set at the same time. They're, they're, they're doing something you have to at least, I think you would agree. It's, it's pretty ambitious. By the time you're done with the second episode, you go, well, who knows where this is going to go? Maybe I'll write this out. Well, mostly what I'm looking for is what's, what's the sale? What's the pitch? What, what is this show going for it? What is the message? Like I know probably people who make shows who hate that anyone would ever think that. Cause like, there is no one message. There is no sales pitch. It's not so crude. Like I, you can't boil down my thing that I made into, you know, a single message. Right. Like, but mm-hmm. there is with all these things, something, there is some sale. <laughs> there is some idea that is being presented, uh, and some, some amount of, uh persuasion like like so what is this show trying to say essentially that's a better way to say what what is this trying to say is it trying to say anything and if so what is it trying to say and with maniac you like you can't answer that question until probably episode two right because Mm -hmm. it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of setup like it's not uh, so many shows especially those shows with a really good pilot uh wrap up in that one pilot everything you need to know about uh, you know, what this show is trying to do. Or like all, all the pieces, you can pretty much surmise that all the pieces are probably on the board. Yeah, like, I mean, not even all the pieces, just like, like, what kind of show is this? 
and what what is this show's position mm, on the kind yeah. of show that it is like jason always cites the the lost pilot where we watch the the pilot for lost you know the premise but you also know you know like the ebert thing you know what it's about but you also know how the show is about it mm-hmm. like from from the first episode you know it, you know the mechanics of the premise but also exactly how this show is going to explore the premise like all all the tools are there you know all you can see them setting up all the characters and the different situations and and the mysterious island and the things that go on and it's like i can see how this can play out and mm-hmm. you're not fooled because there is no turn where like episode two is totally different nope the whole show is essentially like that um leftovers is trickier because it takes longer for you to figure out what the hell is going on and maniac same deal after episode one it doesn't tell you this is going to be a show where x y and z happens and the main characters like they don't even introduce like uh, again the, the four main characters two of them don't even introduce you know formally for a couple of episodes so you don't know where it's going you don't know what its pitch is you just know there's one character and like the show is taking its time it forever does that as well you if you watch forever no no uh, I mean, I don't know if I can recommend it, but uh, yeah, it, yes, I was. No, wait, remind me which one's forever. It's uh, on Amazon. It's one of those shows where I can't say anything. Is it? About is it, it the Fred Armisen one? Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I watched. I watched the first episode, and then I heard a little about how it went, and it sounded like I could see why people would love it, but yeah, I didn't want to pursue it. Yeah, yeah I mean, but but anyway, like uh, on that show, you have to get through literally the first two episodes before right, you to figure get the out prim- where the, show the, the premise and the other premise. And <laughs> I, feel, the big I, feel premise. Like might be, I feel like that might be too long to wait because like what do you are you, it's not the mid-season twist it's in episode two like by then you get it all mm-hmm. well, there's a lot of treading water you spend two entire episodes because the first episode you don't know what the show is about and by the second episode you still kind of don't know but you can kind of guess uh and then the third episode the actual show starts and then like there's like a season of it and it's over so i don't know it's I, this is a thing you can do with different forms where they release you know all the episodes once and everything so i kind of appreciate it but it's a little bit weird for, for someone who grew up with a traditional TV as we did. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by App Optics, a DevOps tool from our friends at Solar Winds. You can learn more about App Optics right now by visiting appoptics.com slash RD. Now here's the thing. The folks at SolarWinds want to break down the divide between applications and metrics. You see, see, uh, I'm not a technologist, but I understand that right now you got a lot of situations where you got applications over here and metrics over there. Instead, they want to bring together dashboards, alert monitoring, and management into one place. You've already got too much to do. You don't want to also be navigating a ton of interfaces. Boo! Boo on the ton of interfaces. AppOptics is monitoring that you can afford to run everywhere. Every minute spent finding a problem, it's expensive. And with App Optics, you'll know if you're having an outage, you can reduce outage time and you get the visibility to solve it faster. You'll get a bird's eye view across all your resources on a single pane of glass. It's super quick and easy to drill into the details. They offer a ton of other great features. They got uh, built-in integrations for over 150 cloud-first applications, instant visibility into server and infrastructure performance, They have robust custom metrics dashboards and automated APM request tracing. All of this adds up to faster troubleshooting. AppOptics is SaaS hosted. They are easy to manage and it's budget friendly. And that's why over 275,000 customers already trust SolarWinds for the performance data that they need. AppOptics let developers and operations teams get back to what they're doing and what they're great at, which is delighting their users. Thank you, AppOptics. 
stuff is so important. Monitoring visibility helps solve problems faster, but it also prevents problems in the first place. You ever thought about that? Well, think about it. App Optics. Gain visibility into your applications and infrastructure and catch performance issues before your customers do. So go and learn more right now. You can try it free for 14 days. You just go to appoptics.com slash RD. That's appoptics.com slash RD. RD. Our thanks to App Optics for supporting reconcilable differences and all of Relay FM. Uh, I've mentioned this show so many times, this podcast, but there's a podcast I really like called The Ringer. Uh, Chris and Andy are the hosts of that. And, you know, in, in some ways similar to TV Talk Machine, a lot of what they do is also, it's kind of, hmm, this sounds annoying, but meta talk. It's like along alongside talking about the specifics of what happened in this episode of The Americans, in some cases, they expand much wider to like, what's happening in the ecosystem of TV and how, and really how stories are being told. And I, I think they're very intelligent and reflective. And for, for example, this latest episode, episode 300, they talk about what's changed since they started doing the show. What's changed uh, in, in TV? What's changed in how stories are told on TV? What's, what's changed in how they do the podcast? And it's surprisingly like not dumb and head up their butt. It's actually really interesting because it has changed a lot. And there's, there's a phrase I, I um, I want to credit to them. I don't know if they got it from somewhere else, but they talk about some shows. Um, I, hope I'm not, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but like mood shows. And I, I think that's that's one aspect of this with almost all kinds of TV, but especially with genre TV. There are some kinds of shows that are mood shows. And I think it's it's I'm trying to think of an example of that. But like there are certain kinds of shows where, you know, let you go into it. And if you're like me and i assume like you you're saying like you say like what's the what's the thing here what what is what is being told and how is it being told for example things we've talked about um what are the rules of this universe and will they be honored will they be expanded like how how quickly do you establish the rules of this of this universe especially in genre tv things like sci-fi and fantasy that becomes important because you want to know like you know the white walkers can do this the the blue guys can do this dragons can't do that whatever you want to understand what the rules are and, and so you can appreciate what's happening in the story um you want to appreciate you want to like really understand if it is science fiction i've still never heard you mention a single thing you consider true hard science fiction but how hard is this sci-fi how much does this veer into fantasy is there magic because all those kinds of things have a big impact on how you evaluate the show and how you get into the show so isn't, isn't maybe I'm just repeating what you're saying, but that's part of it, right? Is in the first episode or two, do you feel like you understand the universe that you're inhabiting? Has there been world well, I building? I don't think you have to understand it, but what I think what you understand is: is this one of those shows where the whole point of what how this show is about this topic is every episode will re- re- reveal another bit of information about? Yeah, is it like how is it a puzzle box? Was another one I was going to say? Yeah, is because it, like you know. is, because some shows will upfront let you know. You know, again, like you said, the, re- the rules of the universe and so on and so forth. And other shows will be like, the point of this show is that every episode you get another piece. And every mm-hmm. episode you get, like, that's the point of the show. So don't, this is, you know, and you can tell if it's going to be that kind of show. If that's what's good about the show is, you know, what what new tidbit will we learn? Uh, and then you're trying to piece together what the rules are or whatever. Um, you know, or and mood shows, I was trying to think of examples. I mean, I can think of the mood of many shows. It was surprisingly, when you mentioned that, I, I immediately thought of the X-Files, which I bet people wouldn't consider a mood show. But X-Files sure as heck had a mood, and it was very consistent. Like, the mood of sort of goofy, creepy paranoia mm-hmm. and weirdness never waned. Like, the, even when they did different episodes and different, like, it was, 
consistent through the end. It was a very different mood than what you might consider a similar show involving FBI agents or aliens. Uh, but right. they didn't have the same X-Files mood, right? Even the imitators, you know, even, even the other Chris Carter shows. Well, I feel like it's a kind of term that's way easier to understand in terms of art house cinema. Like there's a long tradition in art house cinema that goes all the way back to probably, I'm going to say even Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but you go way back in art house cinema and mood or tone um, a lot of the movies that are considered some of the most, you know, beautiful, interesting, unusual, surreal movies, they don't have like a conventional plot. They don't have conventional like characterization, but they are, they're almost like paintings in some ways. They're like, they're like mood pieces. They're evoking a tone and a big piece of what they're telling is, and I, and I you know what? I bet it's true for a lot of PBS stuff. Like a lot of people who like costume dramas and stuff like that. There's, they, sure, they like the characters and they like the stories, but they like the mood that's evoked. And part of it is you're visiting with your friends or your, you know, your antagonist in this little world for a while. It's just that with TV, we're so used to the, like, us growing up with serialized or uh, or even, um, what's the term, anthology shows, or, you know, we're so used to that one way of storytelling. I think it still feels a little fancy to talk about a TV show being that way. But, but in some ways, I mean, apart from all the stuff that was so great in the storytelling and the characterization, Sopranos, maybe a little bit. I mean, there's something about the way that story is told that's really compelling and the, the feel of it, you know, with the music use, the editing, you know, maybe you could argue that even for the wire, but see those, the storytelling story is so upfront with those, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think there's a case to be made that sometimes this is just the little world you want to be in and how this, how the story is being told is very important to your enjoyment of it. Yeah. When you said, uh, movies, foreign films that have mood, I thought of the, uh, three colors trilogy. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. No, I'm, yeah, I, I have seen, I think I've seen blue. But yeah, that's a, that's a great example. There's all kinds of movies from like, uh, I'm trying to think of like, I mean, an extreme example would be Jodorowsky, for example, like something that's, you know, just completely banana balls where there's not really any logic to the story or something like, uh, I think it's called Samsara or movies like the, uh, the dreams, what dreams may come. These movies where like they're just, they're sumptuous and there, there is a, something like a story and there is something like characters but part of it is, and you can even look at it from an intellectual standpoint with something like a Boonwell film, where you just like being in that banana's world for a while. Um, but, you know, just with TV, I think people are a little more reluctant to make it seem that that arty because that feels pretentious. Yeah, and speaking of that, Forever actually is kind of a mood thing, because there is definitely a mood to Forever. I don't think it's a particularly pleasant or enjoyable mood, but it's there. Uh, Fred Armisen know. seemed like he was in a different show. I love Fred Armisen. I mean, I, I, you know, he, to me, this is really dumb to say this. I've seen him in many things. I've seen his comedy uh, stand-up specials. I've seen him on SNL. I've seen him in get many, many guest, guest spots. But I, I know and love him most from Portlandia. Well, you couldn't in a million years imagine. I've seen every Portlandia many times. You can't imagine anybody else but Fred and mm-hmm. Carrie being at the front of that show. And when he does that thing where they're just hanging out together, talking about whatever, and he makes his goggle eyes, I just see a Portlandia character, whereas she has so much subtlety and tonality to like, whether that's on The Good Place or whether that's on SNL or whether that's here. She has so much, Maya Rudolph has so much. She's she's so very gifted that he felt like he was in a more baggy pants show than she was. Yeah, his range is is limited. Uh, You know, I I don't know how involved he is in the thing. Maybe that's why he's in the lead roles because he's super involved. It seems like he's a smart guy and, and, you know, like, but I don't know if he, you know, sometimes... It's a mistake to put yourself in the lead male role, even if you understand the role best, if that is not your uh, forte. But, you know, he wasn't the, like, it's it's a weird mood. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I watched it all again. Like, I didn't, I didn't start on that. 
I'm also put uh, one of my weaknesses is that I am intrigued by the idea of a of a thing that's out there that people don't want to tell you too much about. Like, I don't even know, like uh, knowing that there's a twist as we've discussed is already a spoiler because you can suss out what it's going to be about. But uh, I like the idea that, well, there's still something I don't know. I don't know what the twist is. I can Mm -hmm. guess maybe, but I don't know what it is. So I want to at least watch until I get to the point where I know what the thing is. Like, I enjoy that experience. Like, ah, I didn't know. And I watched it and I got to see it revealed by the show. And then I can decide whether I want to keep going. But especially when all the episodes are already out, and mm-hmm. they're short, and there's not a lot of them. I just like, nah, I'll go to the end. Why not? Like, because yeah, and, and, and sometimes shows will surprise you. Sometimes they'll, you know, you'll take halfway through the season. Even, even Patriot was kind of like that. First episode of Patriot, I was like, meh, meh. But you, really? you know, I'm glad I stuck with it because oh, man. you can't really. Yeah. Is that coming back? By the way, yeah, in a couple weeks. I, I was hooked. I was hooked from the first eight minutes of that show when he when he sings the song in Prague. I was just, I was totally hooked. Uh, it took it longer for me to get into that, but I'm I fear for the second season of that because what I don't. Yeah, I know, I know the ending stuff. was yeah, like what's where's that going to go? Would you be able? I'm putting you on the spot here, <clears throat> so feel free to say, feel free to say you don't know, but can you conjure up? I'm going to say in particular a non comedy because I know you're not much of a comedy guy, and comedy finales are pretty easy to say. Oh, I love the way they handled that. Can you think of non comedy series that you think really nailed the landing? For the for the series finale, for, it, it, was, it could be for a season, but especially for a series, were you taking out the sort of um, genetic and extra critical thought of like, oh well, they had a limited budget for that season, or you know, they got cut short or whatever? But just on, off the top of your head, can you think of any shows where you felt they accomplished something special, unique, or appropriate to that show where they really nailed the landing with a series? Well, this is kind of a cliche at this point, but I actually agree with it. I I really like the Sopranos ending. Uh, I like it more every year. At the time, I was equivocal, but I love it now. Yeah, like I did. I I never disliked it, uh, but it was so sort of it was so unexpected that it took me a little while to process it. And the more I think about it, the more I thought about it, and the more I do think about it, the more it rises in my esteem. Sopranos, I was listed as my favorite television uh, show ever, but I haven't seen it in so many years that I'm not willing to stick to that at that point because so many shows have come out since. And maybe if I rewatch it, I would find out that I have other favorites. But anyway, that ending I thought was great. That's an easy one just because it's so mm-hmm. inventive and so different. And I think it really did accomplish exactly what it set out to do in a way that I viscerally felt. That's a really, that was a very gutsy decision on any number of levels that that took a lot of stones to not just see at the time well here's my take on that is that at the time i don't know i felt a little bit mm, ripped off would be too strong of a term but oh what a cop-out way to end that show but over the years the more i thought about i was like no that wasn't a cop-out like he's always looking over his shoulder he will be for the rest of his life and the way that ends was like and especially i have to say the music cue where like i think if memory serves it ends on don't stop and it kind of fades off right when it like goes to black or whatever. And it was, it was so uh, unsettling and really troubling. I get shivers thinking about it now. And like over time, I've like, you know, that wasn't that absolutely was not anything near a cop out. That was a really bold decision that was entirely appropriate for that series. Uh, and the best thing about it, uh, and in my mind is again, like, it's not like I intellectually thought about it later and said, oh, that actually was a clever thing. In the moment leading up to it, I was feeling intensely all the things that the show wanted me to feel. With you know, yeah, Meadow like parking Meadow showing her car, up late. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, just like the the guy in the members only jacket, and it was just like 
I was on edge. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very difficult to do that for a long running show to sort of recapture, like, because I, I was think back to the tension in season one of Sopranos, mm-hmm. just this incredible tension throughout the entire season. Everything is on the verge of falling apart in the worst possible way. Yeah. Like, and there's like just, so much unraveling in this world. Another great story at the end of like a generational thing. Maybe it was never that great, but for sure, this this group of people, and especially this one guy, are very close to completely losing it. Yeah, and the tension between, you know, his mom and him and all like that just it really pervades the entire first season. And after so many seasons of a show, it's after so many years, it's so hard to recapture that in the final episode when the pressure is on. And they 100% did. It's the most tense I had been watching that show since mm-hmm. season one, which is an amazing feat. And then they, they, at that point, by that point, they put you through a lot. Like I, for one, that one that jumps to mind for me is, oh, God, not not even what is going to happen to Adriana, but when is going to happen to Adriana. And it just went on and on and on. Mm-hmm. There's that one episode mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, no, this is going to be it, isn't it? And like every like pico second of that, I was just like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, I can't take another second of this. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, this is a good show. Um, I think other endings that worked well. I mean, I'm sure there's tons of them that are probably just not coming to mind at the moment. Uh, no, that's okay. It's, a, it's an on-the-spot thing. Yeah, I, I have to think about it more. I, I, I have definitely had a lot of endings that I found uh, satisfying. I, I'm I'm easy on endings, I feel like. I, I'm not asking... Like, I, I think a lot of people, when they watch television shows, even, even critics or whatever, like, their fundamental problem is that the show is ending <laughs> like that, that like that there is nothing that could be done in the ending that would make up for the fact that the show is ending it's like the the uh, the unwritten assumption is the ending episode was fine but now the show is over and there won't be any more episodes and i don't like that cuz it was a good show mm-hmm. like like the the underlying complaint is they should uh, they should have continued to make good episodes of the show instead of ending the show like I mean, in the best case like a show that everybody loved or whatever even if the show has gone on too long it's like and then they ended it right i feel like that's you know it's people don't want it to end and to justify the ending they say now you have to do something you know, they put an incredibly high bar like i have to be bowled over it has to be an amazing revelation but not too amazing and i can't feel cheated and has to feel earned and, and everything has to be tied up but not too much has to be tied up and it's like this it's criteria that can never be satisfied you know fundamentally the problem is that the show is ending uh and as far as i'm concerned an episode of the show that is a good episode of the show that continues in the way the show continued is mostly a, a reasonable ending to a show that was continued to go on. A show like ER or something like that, where it's just so many characters come and mm-hmm. go and so many ridiculous things happen. You, you can't, I mean, this is why comedies are so much easier at this, um, especially beloved comedies, beloved characters. But like a beloved comedy like Parks and Rec, that is the corniest, I would, boy, I would just say for sure, like, do not watch that last episode because it will it will seem so stupid to you. But if you are a fan of that show, they had the they had the space to say this is happening in the future and here's everybody's happy ending and they play the entire thing out over this hour that's just like it's just cry inducing it's it's so great and so corny or even something you could look at something like cheers where you know they go and they turn the lights off in the bar like you've got a lot more latitude there in this make-believe comedy world to kind of ease it down but if it's been a real sophisticated show with lots of stuff well, what does it come down to you say well how many people how many scores of people will die this season on game of thrones 
right? You're already thinking like, oh my God, when's my favorite character going to die on that show? Because you know that's going to be part of the winding down of that. I think that's harder to land with a sophisticated show that has by its nature sometimes invoked realism uh, with suddenness, right? St- you know, kind of um, happenstance things coming along. It doesn't feel like it's just a, a clockwork. You know what I mean? That's that's way harder to do on a on a drama. I think people aren't satisfied by the 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 ending that says and people continue to live just as you've been seeing them live. No, like, I think it's very unsatisfying. I and I'm I find that satisfying very often more so than the forced resolution that like there's umpteen years of this series in which this is how people have been living, but then suddenly in the final episode, all of everybody's lifelong issues yeah, right. uh, are are either resolved or explode. Like that's like Brazil. It becomes artificial. like Brazil where you're like, boy, Brazil's a real different movie depending on whose ending you see. And the, the ending where everybody gets what they wanted feels like, oh, that's that doesn't feel right. That feels like somebody's having a dream. <laughs> oh, here is another one that, that I think they did really well. Uh, speaking of that, uh, Breaking Bad. I think the ending of Breaking Bad was uh, clever and satisfying. Uh, the actual I would say even those last few episodes were I mean, you could just feel the whole thing kind of winding down. But wow, the the, the last few were so good. And the last one was amazing. Yeah, yeah that's, I, that's I, a really I, good one. And I I mean, the, I like the, the clever endings because I subscribe to the theory that uh, I don't know if I want to spoil Breaking Bad. But I subscribe to the theory that the actual end of our beloved character is well before the the end of the, the series. Mm-hmm. Might have been told out of sequence. Uh no, I don't want to say anymore. That's a very good show. You should check it out. Yeah, clever, clever endings. I like. like. I said I'm pretty, I'm pretty easy ending on endings. The endings I tend not to like are the ones where they artificially try to put a capstone on a thing that I didn't think needed a capstone. I'm fine with the good, like you said, the Parks and Rec ending. If you want to show how everything's play out and it's a logical progression from where they were, because you just want to fast forward and show people, how, that's fine. Well, it's also it's just it's there's so much fan service uh, that I totally appreciated in that last episode. There's so many little. Like like little funny things about like these ongoing motifs and Easter eggs that that have payoff improbably have payoff. I mean the whole the, first of all the the whole premise that uh, the last the last thing they're going to do as an office uh, is I, I'm trying to remember if it's the end of the, that season or the other season. But the last job they ever have to do is go to the the playground where the show started. Basically, there was the there was the the show starts with Leslie Nope having to get a drunk guy out of a slide, and it ends with that same guy coming in years later to get help fixing a swing. Like stuff like that is is super satisfying in a comedy. Yeah, I mean that that's fine. Like because if it's true, it's true to how the characters have been running the whole show. And you think if this show continued without me watching it, like without anyone watching it, and these people's lives continued, it could very well arrive at a point like this. And if you want to see the characters off. Sometimes you want to see fast forward to, you know, many years in the future and show me how it all turns out. And it should ring true. It shouldn't be like this person who was a jerk the whole series is something the nicest guy in town. Everyone loves him. That doesn't ring true. Right. That's not, you know, unless you've been slowly changing them over the course of the season. But, you, you know, that's anyway, I, I'm i not particularly picky about endings. It takes a lot for and, and even if the endings are terrible, like, I mean, I really didn't like the ending of Lost. Surprise. Lots of people don't like it. It doesn't <laughs> really? retroactively. <laughs> That's a, that's a mood. It's a, I mean, not, maybe not strictly a mood show, but like, you know what you're in for. <laughs> yeah. Well, but the thing is, it doesn't ruin like, oh, you ruined the whole show because the ending was weird. No, it doesn't. They had lots of really good seasons of television and like it, it, kind of even the X-Files. So I have an X-Files DVD collection back when people bought DVD collections. Uh, and I stopped at season six because mm-hmm. after that, the show got a lot worse. Uh, yeah. And there was a perfectly serviceable 
series finale somewhere floating around in season six or whatever it was. I was like, if you if they ended the show there, it would have been fine. But they continued, and there was a bunch of seasons that I didn't like that much. It doesn't ruin the show for me. I can just pretend it ended after the part that I thought it ended at. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's like Star Wars. The prequels don't ruin the other movies. Like they, they're bad movies; they exist, but the other movies are just as they always were. So I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Was which was the must have been season one of The Wire, where Jimmy? The, I think I feel like it ends with <laughs> Jimmy's gotten in trouble and he ends up on the police boat, and you just see the bolt boat pulling away <laughs> from mm-hmm. the harbor. It's such mm-hmm. a great way to end that season. It's like, oh yeah, that would be how they'd end this. Yeah, definitely in keeping with the. Uh... The mood of that show. I got two for you, McNulty. <laughs> One for your narrow Irish ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Casper. You can learn more about Casper right now by visiting casper.com slash diffs. Casper are the company that's focused on sleep and they are dedicated to making you exceptionally comfortable one night at a time. You know, if you think about it, you spend about a third of your life sleeping. If you spend a third of your life doing anything, you'd want to make sure it's the best it can possibly be, and that is why you need Casper. Casper mattresses are perfectly designed for humans with engineering to soothe and support your natural geometry. It's got all the support in all the right places. You ask yourself, as one would, what goes into making a Casper mattress so gosh darn comfortable? Well, I'll tell you why. They combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality mattress with just the right sink and bounce. Casper mattresses are designed and developed right here in the United States of America, and their breathable design helps to regulate your body temperature throughout the night. And, uh, you know, with over 20,000 reviews and an average rating of 4.8 stars, Casper is very quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. And you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. They deliver your mattress directly to your door in an impossibly small box. And you know, if for any reason you don't love it, Casper has a hassle-free return policy. I, I said it before, I'll say it again. I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. You know what? I'm sorry they still have to run ads. I'm sorry. Everybody should be sleeping on a Casper. All the people in my house do. Sometimes our cat sleeps on there too, but we don't like her. But my daughter and my wife and me, we all sleep on a Casper mattress and we love it. I don't like traveling because when I travel... You know what? Shame on travel because I rarely get a Casper mattress and that bums my head. Now, here's the thing. Right now, you can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash diffs and using the very special offer code diffs at checkout. That's D-I-F-F-S. Terms and conditions apply. You go to casper.com slash diffs, offer code D-I-F-F-S. Our thanks to Casper for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. And we're back. We've got to reload. Mm-hmm. You watching the uh, Walking Dead? I sure am. Wow. <sighs> okay, we'll save it. Watch the first one. Oh man. Well, I actually I moved that up in our topic section because we were talking so much about uh, where t- television shows and stuff. Are uh, the second act? Oh, oh, oh! Actually, that would be awesome. Great, 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 great. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. Um, do you want to jump into that now? Yeah, sure. I also got a Google Home Hub. You should check it out. Um, and on, <laughs> you're in the document. I see your cursor going around. <laughs> uh, a theme that has emerged as long as we're talking about entertainment, something that has uh, come up. I think you said as much. Uh, you seem to 
be very interested uh, and drawn to, um, how do I put it, apocalyptic uh, fiction, including TV shows, I assume novels. Um, something seems to really interest you about a desperate world um, with scarce resources, uh, imminent danger, and um, maybe strict rules for like how that universe is governed. I don't know. I just thought I'd talk about that. My question from the main topics list is, uh, why do you like apocalyptic stuff so much? I think I've talked about this before, and like I was trying to think of what what kicked it off in my life, right? And I mean, it's, there's an obvious inflection point, uh, if, it, but I'm not sure if it started that. The inflection point was the release of Stephen King's The Stand Uncut Edition. Guess. In the I was gonna guess Stephen King. I should have guessed. And I had been reading Stephen King before that, and I had read a series of books before that. I was very into fantasy books before that, and everything like that. Um, but across the stand is about the end of the world. Spoilers. Uh, and it was like my favorite book ever for a long time. Um, still one of my favorites. Uh, and I'm trying to think, okay, so that's fine, but it's probably not where my fascination with the end of the world came from, as we've discussed many times in the past. And as you talk about with John Roderick and other people who are of a similar age, the end of the world was the pervasive background radiation of, of our entire childhood because we were children of the eighties and a nuclear war could happen at any time. And it was just, it was just always there that like, that's all well and good, but you know, we could all blow up at any time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it'll be this, uh, we, we can, we have the ability to blow up the world and it's very likely that we will because we have these two superpowers who are, have these, all these things pointed at each other. And there was tons of media in all forms to reinforce this to us. All sorts of movies, that, that, and television that it, shows. It could happen with very little provocation, let alone very little notice, let alone very little anybody would be able to do about it. It, it could just, you could just start your day and have no idea that that was going to be the last day for everybody you know. And that, that sounds nuts to say today, or maybe not, but I'm glad, I'm glad you agree with that. It was, this is long before the day, uh, the day after came out. But basically, we were raised at a time where we just felt like this, this, and this is even different from the 50s, because we're talking here about hydrogen stuff where <laughs> the, the maps for this stuff were not very promising. And it was always, it was always hanging over our heads. Yeah, and I feel like popular media was more weaponized. So the Cuban Missile Crisis was arguably, arguably a lot closer than we ever got during our childhoods, right? But we, it, during that time, they didn't have popular media, at, at, like, penetration to the point, like, during that time the television and movie theaters were not saturated with stories about uh, the Cold War and the nuclear arsenal that were as explicit and as direct as they came to be in the 80s. Like, it was still sort of this genteel, I don't even know if the Hollywood Code or whatever was still, you know, going on around that. But it's like, there was there was money to be made by showing you all the terrible things that can happen in every possible angle and... Uh, and so that was just, it was just something that I feel like we all internalized. Uh, and I feel like that's still with me. Like that, that internalized, because first of all, it hasn't actually gone away. All the weapons are still there. And, you know, I don't spend loosely thinking about it or whatever, but it's, you know, just because you stop thinking about it doesn't mean it goes away. And second, internalizing that is kind of like internalizing at, at like too young an age or whatever, the, the concept of death, mm-hmm. right? That, that people die. It takes a while for kids to get that that's a thing. Um, internalizing the idea that the entire planet like life on the planet is not even permanent uh, again maybe a thing you might not think about it if you until unless you go into like geology or uh, some other scientific field that looks at the long view of earth but very quickly 
because of these nuclear weapons were there and because you know war movies and things about that are appealing to young people and were pitched at young people uh and the whole you know cold war propaganda on both sides was appealing to young people in various ways so i feel like we experienced it early on so the the concept of a giant reset button on everything in, in the entire planet was always out there and i i enjoyed and watched all those movies too you know like war games or the terminator movies or you know obviously the tv things like they after threads and all sorts of you know books about that or like earlier stuff like it was on the beach or whatever uh alas babylon there's a bunch of you know books you read in school that are uh on topics like that so it was everywhere and i enjoyed it and i sought it out and i watched it mostly you know enjoyed mostly the same way that you enjoy thinking about a thing that scares you or like you can't i mean can't help but think about it uh, i'm gonna get the enjoyment part in a second i think like i should mm-hmm. put that aside but like you couldn't help but thinking about it like but you're the, you're you're establishing here that you're already I, I like what you said well i don't like what you said but what you said about death is true most people aren't really at a young age are not compelled to face the idea of death truly as the permanent thing that will end us all but in this case like you had to get a little bit you had to get your head around this idea and i think it rewires your pathways a little bit it makes yeah, you cause, at cause least it wasn't very like, vigilant. It wasn't just personal death. It was like mm-hmm. universal, essentially, death. That like, yeah, you're going to die. And the people that you know that, but everybody can die. Like, that's a possibility, mm-hmm. a very real possibility. Like, it's so much bigger than any yeah, individual person. Yeah, this includes Mima and Cousin Sue. Like, right. this is complete, yeah. Yeah, and um, and so when The Stand came out, I was already pretty big into Stephen King, and it was just right up my alley, and it was a very interesting take on it, and I loved in particular, in the stand, I love the the you know obviously the the playing out of the apocalypse. I think was good because you know I I tended to think that books that skipped over that part were kind of a cheat because I felt like that was the interesting part, like going from normalcy to the aftertimes. Like, don't skip that. Don't say mm-hmm. suffice it to say terrible things happen. Here we are in the aftertimes, right? Or like the stand just drags you through the entire thing and then keeps going for a ways after, and it keeps going. The people trying to figure out. Like the the parts I liked about the stand, I remember liking so much about the stand was when the the groups of people would just sit down and talk to each other about. So, like, what are we going to do, and how is this going to play out? Like, what are we what are we even doing here, and thinking about the possibilities, like just discussing it, like you know, basically like dorm room discussions. But they're in it; they're in it for real. Is it a and terrible rather, spoiler? If you, well, of course, it is. Uh, can you tell me what happens in the stand? Probably not. Uh, I mean, so so some, something very very bad happens, and they know that it's coming. Is that the idea? Uh, it's the, yeah. Some well, almost everybody dies. So it's the end of the world thing. It's an apocalypse thing. But there okay. are people left at the end who, like, it's the the thing the end of the world is no longer a threat to them. But pretty much everybody's dead. Okay, right. And so they have to figure out. And there is there is a, a threat, a, another threat going on because it's a Stephen King book. There's a little bit of a supernatural element mixed in there or whatever. But. They're not worried that if the, that the thing, the end of the world is going to get them. Like in The Walking Dead, they're still worried about the zombies. Right. But what they are worried about is, well, what do we do now? Because pretty much everybody's dead. Uh, but here we are. Like, essentially, you know, how, do, how does one rebuild society? Should we rebuild society? How would that work? Uh, do, do we care about rebuilding society? Do we just care about, you know keeping ourselves safe like what are we even doing here and there's lots of like they have actual discussions I, I, that happens so little in the media that i watch i always want people why don't you guys talk to each other about what's going on instead of just reacting to things that happen mm-hmm. in reality people would sit down and talk to each other and say 
should we do this? Should we do that? That's a good idea. That's a bad idea. Here's an idea of how I think this is going to play out. No, it's going to turn out like this. What, you know. <laughs> but could, you probably could have used a little more of that in the quiet place, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> what's our strategy here? Yeah, like uh, in a lot of those things that... The implication is those discussions already happened, but you don't want to see them like, right. We're just going to let you know that they already had this discussion and here's how they decided to deal with it. So you just see them doing a thing like, but I want to see the discussion about, okay, we're going to have a signaling system. And this is because if you make them have that discussion, it can't be too absurd because then you're like the other person in the scene would have to be like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like what the system makes no sense. Right. Mm -hmm. If you never see them have that and they just use the system like in the quiet place or whatever, I guess I accept it. I wasn't I didn't get to see the conversation, but someone convinced somebody else that this was a good idea that they should invest time in. (laughs) Anyway, Christmas lights in a basement. The stand doesn't skip on that stuff. But, But getting to why I enjoy it, I think that is, you know, maybe the more interesting uh, part of this uh I, I think the reason i enjoy it is very straightforward maybe it has to do with uh with uh dear arvin hansen right um and it has to do with the topic that we're not going to get to today which you put a little bit lower down of how to talk to people mm-hmm. is that if you're the type of person who is either anxious about or feels like they're unsuccessful at dealing with other people the fact that other people are everywhere is a constant source of tension mm-hmm. like that there are people everywhere and if you want to do anything out in the world you're going to have to deal with those other people and all your interactions with other people feel fraught and unsuccessful. So this is not just about of- resources and alliances. See, my, my original guess, which I now think is totally wrong, is that it was something slightly video gamey about the competition of it. No. But you're no. saying something very different, that this this is about the need for cooperation and communication um, with the frequency and candor that most people find uncomfortable. Right. So if you get rid of all the other people, mm-hmm. a large source of tension in your life is removed because there aren't that many other people like you got rid of all those other people that are out there right mm-hmm. there's just maybe it's not just you because you'd be lonely right but the number of people in the entire world is shrunk down to a number that can be that can fit in like the main characters of a story right or maybe there's so few people like there's there's a lot of people but they're so spread out right that you just eliminate that in the same, same way as one of my other anxieties like money stuff right uh the reason why i think it, i would be good at being a rich person is because uh, worrying about money, surprisingly, is one of the things that I spend a lot of my time doing. Mm-hmm. And if you could take that worry away, uh, I mean, obviously, other worries would come to replace it. But that's that's the number one. There's always the number one, right? And that's a pretty big one. And if you could just eliminate that one for good, right? And, then and, I just and no, and no, to a near certainty that it was eliminated for good. Right, exactly. Then it's like oh, God, one, one of, less part of that worry. is that anxiety. Like I get the feeling you're probably not starving month to month, but that hasn't changed the fact. Yeah, no, that it's, it's still it's, in your mind. It's mostly an irrational anxiety. And same thing with the people stuff. But the no, same I know thing. what you mean. So, so, if you, yeah. so if you kill ninety nine percent of the population, if you're worried about interacting with people, you that problem is ninety nine percent solved for you. No, and I know that sounds terrible and sick and so on and so forth. But like I honestly think that's part. Well, you better hope the ones left behind are the ones that you can communicate yeah. with, though. Well, yeah, but I honestly think that's part of the appeal. Um, the other part of the appeal is probably also, you know, selfish and weird. But like, the world is a a lovely place, and you don't get to enjoy all of it because so much of it belongs to other people. Uh, and it's kind of the sort of idyllic when all the people are gone, the world goes back to nature, which sounds great until you're eaten by a bear, obviously. But, you know, <laughs> the, whole, like, the, the, the whole idea of uh, every, and this is talked about in The Stand a lot, which is part of it, everyone else is gone. 
but all their stuff is still here and the earth is still here and it's not spoiled by radiation and it's not scorched by fire and the ground is not infertile like the the type of apocalypse where this is more like a Burgess Meredith in the library thing like all the stuff is still there yeah finally finally you have time to read all these books you wanted to read and like in our reality obviously you'd be spending a lot of time just trying to survive and find clean water and stuff like that but the whole idea of even just that even being able to face that challenge you don't have to worry about money anymore because there is no money. <laughs> you watch these the same way some other people watch travel videos. <laughs> like, yeah, wouldn't it be nice oh, for everyone else to be gone? They don't have to go to work today. Oh, my and God. For, and, and then, and finally, what, yeah, exactly. They don't have to go to work today. And the, to, to your point of like, and it is, would be fun to solve the problem. Now, mm-hmm. how, do we, how do we make sure we can survive? And you're cheating because it's like, I don't have to rebuild society. I mean, I could if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. But there's enough, like, stuff left around from the old world. For me to live out my life, fine. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, you know, if, you, if you're interested in rebuilding society, you can do that. But you can also just work on rebuilding a life for yourself. It's the same reason people go off and live in a cabin in the woods, right? They just so want to, you case, know. In this case, instead of, like, capitalist society, you're, you're hewing, like, a, a small, sustainable village. It's like a Thoreau thing, like mm-hmm. a, a weird sort of cargo cult Thoreau where you, where you get to, like, <laughs> use... You get to use all the things that are left over from other people, but you're also like, and honestly, throw didn't get Cooking that far. Video games. He didn't. I've been to where his little shack was. He wasn't that far away from civilization, so he's well, like like a parking lot at a mall or something. There's a little bit of backyard camping going. Throw was backyard <laughs> camping. Yeah, I'll just say it. <laughs> okay, people are not afraid to take down throw. Are you sure? Um, made it sound like he was pretty far away from everybody. It's not that far. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Boston kinda, was a city. Kind of ruins anyway. the effect, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, it's like, it's like, I, uh, not to change the subject, but I, when you're like, I think you were raised almost certainly in a more, at least slightly more affluent atmosphere than I was, but like, it was always amazing to me. Like, I didn't realize this really until college that kids who came from families that were both wealthy and especially emotionally stable, and especially definitely where they came, they never missed a meal. They never, they never had to worry. There was going to be some kind of a knock on the door. They were really Diff- they were wired differently than I was. I, I, for a variety of reasons, I grew up with a fair amount of anxiety about different kinds of things, which I was all too happy to amplify for myself. But I started, I finally, it wasn't until college that I realized like, oh man, like you could totally screw up and your life wouldn't be over. And like, you know, you're, I, I mean, I grew up feeling like I am one mistake away from utter ruin all the time. And I know everybody's able to get themselves into that position, but that was, that was always like, kind of a little little distinction is like are you are you do you have the confidence to try things knowing that if you fail you won't be subsumed yeah my my experience with myself and other other people from various uh, upbringings and walks of life is that you know genetics has a bigger factor than you would think because Mm -hmm. my anxiety about money has no relation like i never had to worry about money as a kid Mm-hmm. And yet I'm incredibly anxious about money. And yet I know people who grew up worrying, you know, with with money security issues all the time and are just like everything will work out and they're fine and laid back because it's just the kind of people they are. So, like, I, it, there is probably like some kind of correlation, right, for the people who are kind of in what, the middle. What about the, what about the weird admixture of like um, we've never even had to talk about money in our family, but maybe the 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 parents and the family are either dysfunctional or emotionally withholding. Does that have a different flavor? I, I feel like emotional stuff is definitely more of a factor, but like I, I know too many people who never had to worry about money who are uh, 
worry about money all the time in their adult lives and it makes no sense like it's not they weren't hmm. they literally never had to worry about like i, I didn't have fear, to worry about it i didn't loss? have to worry like, about like could it be status loss fears i i think it's just your personality hmm. right because i i wasn't worried that i would be destitute because again my parents could help me out if i needed to i was just worried about like i don't know like i mean we'll put it this way maybe it has to do with independent streak i i never even considered like they were there for me if I if I ever needed, but I, right. I never like I would never do that. I would never. They would be it would be considered a failure. Like mm-hmm. you're supposed to be, become an independent person. If I ever had to ask my parents, well, especially if you felt like you had every if they and you without ever talking about it felt like you had all of the tools that you needed to do this on your own. Yeah, like there's no there's no excuse for you mm-hmm. not to have done this. Everything was set, teed up for you. Just go and do it. But then eventually it was like I, you know, I wanted to be self sustaining. And when you're just starting out, even if you have all the advantages and a true. college education and no student debt or whatever, you still have to. The first time you get a job and realize you have income and expenses and they have to balance. And how many paychecks are you from not having enough money to continue to live where you live? And the, the oh, and you know, like what signing, about the unknown unknowns? Right. Signing your first lease and being like, well, mm-hmm. what happens if I lose my job? How will I get out of this lease? And there's this penalty and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, until you can get your feet under you, like, and, and I'm not saying that it's rational. Like, I shouldn't have been worried about any of that. Everything would be fine, right? I'm, I'm in the easiest possible. I'm playing the game on easy mode. But the irrational worry, I still have the worry. I have all mm-hmm. this, you know, I have all this, you know, savings saved up from this life of being stingy and not buying fancy things. Well, you know, not buying as much fancy things as I probably could have if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still worried about it. And the reason I'm worried is because I plan to live a full life and I currently don't have enough money to fund that life. Right. I have enough money to get me through some amount of years, but then the money runs out and what happens? I die. I go live. I live on the street. Right. <laughs> like it's a, that's, that's basically still my mindset. And so I, I will have eternally have this tension of until you have enough money when you can do the math and say, if you live to 150, you can live in this style to which you've become accustomed. You have that amount of money, even if it never gains any interest and it's just kept in bills under your mattress, right? So you don't have to worry about investments. You don't have to worry about anything like that. It's just like you're all set. I'm never going to get that amount of money because no one ever will. Well, and but. this is, um, I mean, not to diagnose you, but I think this is also part of your, as you say, hypercritical nature is that it is not in your nature to find is is not in your nature is maybe not in your skill set you can certainly identify what's good about a thing but what makes you unusual uh and maybe even special is your inability to not see what could go wrong or what could be better what could be different so like even if you feel like you've got i hate to keep making this about money but like let's just all resources you've got the resources you need by almost anybody's standards to feel like you're you're not in imminent fear of uh, privation and collapse i would suspect that part of that is like your your gene that makes you look for the tiny crack and blemish would certainly apply to finding you know uh, maybe not an irrational reason this could go wrong but certainly scanning the horizon for all the things that could be a problem and then finding it impossible not to see that anymore yeah it's just like i always normal people if they get a good job and eventually work that job for a while and save up and put a down payment on a house and get a mortgage. And they're like, everything's fine. I've done it. I have arrived. I've got all the things. I've got the American dream. But all I can see is uh, you can't pay off that mortgage unless you work for the next 30 years. Are you sure you're going to have a job that can afford to make that mortgage payment for the next 30 years? How are you? How sure are you about that? Like, <laughs> it's just that you don't you don't yet have enough money to not worry about money. Therefore, you should constantly be worrying about money. And no one will ever have enough money to not worry about money. You know, most, you know, unless you're going to win the lottery or become like a, you know, independently, like that's the, 
nobody has that luxury, right? No, most people don't. And so if you're like me and you're always going to worry about that, it doesn't make any sense. Like you shouldn't be worried about it. Everything's fine. But you just think, do you have enough money not to worry about money? My answer is no, I don't. Mm-hmm. I absolutely don't because I, you know, if I die tomorrow, I'm fine. But if I die when I'm 95 and put all my kids through college, I don't have that kind of money right now. Like I will if I keep working my job and it'll be right. fine, right? right? Which is it's the stupidest thing ever. Um, I was thinking about um, I can't find the exact fact on this, but I think a fairly well known true thing that happened was that the Marx Brothers had been, um, I think, pretty successful in vaudeville, like the whole family, all of them, and uh, they'd certainly made money in. And starting to go into movies, but you know, they, they actually, they were, I mean, I think Groucho was at least in his late thirties, probably forties when they started making the movies. And I think the advice that he got was, look, you're crazy not to put everything you've got into stocks because it is going up and up and up. And like, this could be your future, right? You just, if you pile all this money you've got into this and you can guess what happened. I mean, he, like so many people in October of 1929, it just went away. Like in less than a week, like everything he had just went away because he was so overinvested in the stock market. Um, and I mean, you know, that, I, I'm not sure, apropos of nothing, but that's the kind of thing where you hear that, and you're like, oh my God. Like if you'd ask Groucho Marx in 1928, how, how are things going? He's like, well, you know, of course, like anybody I worry, but you know, I'm in pretty good shape with this. You know, those kinds of things give you a chill when you think about stuff just, just going away. But he didn't have the mindset. He didn't have the mindset of like, uh, you know, take the amount of money that you have right now that someone's telling you to invest. And divide it by the number of years that you think you're going to live. How much money does that give you per year? Uh, is that enough money for you to live on? If the answer is yes, you literally don't need to do anything with your money. You're like, that's so foolish. If you invested that even in the most conservative investment and got 3% of it, it would be blah, 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 blah. Like, but that's true. But like, just bottom line it is, you know, and again, you can still think about what if the U.S. economy crashes? What if, you know, what if there's a nuclear war? Like, there's all sorts mm-hmm. of things that can ruin your plan. But in terms of, like, if you think the United States will continue to be a going concern, and if you think you will manage to live a healthy life and avoid, you know, health things and not get into a car accident and yada, 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 do you have enough money to find the rest of your life at a reasonable state? And if the answer to that is yes, your main job is not to screw that up. Your mm-hmm. main job is not to, oh, you've got to make sure you can make more money and live like a rich person or whatever. People, that's not how people think, right? That, you know, people get used to a fancier lifestyle and they say, oh, well, now it takes much more money to sustain. My, how much money do you need per year? And that number just keeps going up and up as your income goes up. Like it's the, the I'm going to say it's the disease of America, but it's also the, the dream of America that you get a nicer house, a bigger house, fancier clothes, you know, all, all nicer things. And then just, you, you, it, you know, that's how these, I always read about all these, I don't want to make it political, all these terrible Republican politicians who are in tremendous debt, presumably because they feel some pressure to live lifestyle that they can't afford. Right. It's like they're all in these weird debts and like, you know, it, it, get money from these strange places and have these houses that they can't afford. Like, I always read those stories. The, like, Nation, the Nationals baseball tickets, that still seems, there's something about that that yeah, seems what a, weird. Another one that I read, like, it was about the, the, the horrible guy in Georgia, like, is like $800,000 that he borrowed from a bank that he's part of. It's like, what do you need all this money for? Like, what, I don't, like, it's, it's, it's financially dumb, but it's like, but what, what is this need that you're filling? Like, you have enough money that you could have led a comfortable life. Where you're like, no, I have to live like I'm a multimillionaire, but I'm not a multimillionaire, but I want to live like I am. It's like, that, that seems like worse than, anyway. Circle, circle me back to Apocalypse. Yeah, all right. So, that's, uh, I, I was mostly using that as, as an analogy of like, there's this thing that you're constantly worried about, and we can take that off the table. 
to, to make room for the next thing we're going to worry about. <laughs> this right? is certainly not what I anticipated, right? but I love it. So, okay. so getting rid of all the people. <laughs> Apocalypse tourism. <laughs> yeah. Getting rid of all the people takes off the table entirely a whole category of stuff, like all the social anxiety stuff. Because even, even if there are other people around, like no one's worried about politeness or... Uh, you know, like if you're only the last few people, it's literally the joke of like if, if you were the last person on earth, people just want another person to be there to talk to, so you're not just like by yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So the bar is is made incredibly lower, and I do think that I would have something to offer in, in a, a post apocalypse scenario that other people might not, uh, just from being like a someone who likes uh, puzzles and problems and you know, knows things about stuff, which like mm-hmm. stupid esoteric knowledge suddenly becomes more valuable or even the ability to just get knowledge from books. And, you know, who knows? Like, it, well, and the availability in a small group to have an influence on good decision-making. Yeah. Like that's not, so, I mean, it's not, it's not like, it's not just carpenters there. You're going to need people who have the presence of mind to make, to make good decisions about what's, what, 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 it, what can be accomplished and what should be accomplished. And the stand explores that pretty well. It has some characters who were like losers before the apocalypse and some characters who were successful. And, you know, it puts them on the other side of the apocalypse and says, how does that turn out for them? And it pretty is. There's a lot of characters in it. So it does like most permutations. Like it's not like all the people who are losers before become a better after some of them get worse. It's not like all the people who are successful before are successful after. Like it doesn't it's it's a nice (laughs) for some reason you can suddenly walk. Yeah, his, his character. It, what was what was the name of his character? Um, the one guy. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh, you've you've uh, knocked it out of my. But that pedal. was that was a brilliant, you know, little twist pretty early on. Is that like, wow, his life was real different before. He's right. I yeah, mean, the, but he, the way he, he got comes, a little wacky, which is also a thing that happens occasionally in the stand. But it's like the 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 part of the part I enjoyed from the stand is that by stripping away all the things that defined your life before, whether mm-hmm. it's your upbringing, your economic class, your profession, uh, things you've done to people, your reputation among your peers. Once you kill all your peers, remove money, uh, <laughs> have no history, uh, like erase all of that. It's kind of like you get a chance to see what is actually in these people. Are they fundamentally good people? Are they fundamentally bad people? Because it's kind of like moving to a new school, right? But uh, on a global scale. Right. You you get to leave behind who you were at the old school and see, you know, was I picked on because I just got into a bad situation or was I picked on because I'll always be picked on at every school I go to because that I, I am a prey animal, essentially, in, in, in the society. <laughs> right. Uh, you, and you aren't just going to this one apex high school. Yeah. It's yeah. And, yeah. And so there's a lot of, you know, you see that with 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 people in a lot of cases, some people just they're born into a difficult situation where everything is stacked against them and, uh, you know, it affects their life. And if you were to press a reset button and put that exact same person in a totally different situation, they would be phenomenally successful, right? The mm-hmm. only reason they're not is like the, the weight of the entire world is, is holding them down. Whereas other people, uh, if you put them in any situation, they'll probably be about the same success because they're not phenomenal, but they're not terrible. Like it's just, Anyway, the the giant reset button is is incredibly appealing to me. The lack of people is appealing. The sort of having the Earth to yourself because the Earth the Earth is a great prize, as many aliens know. Uh, like mm-hmm. it is it is a very nice planet, and if you can get rid of all the other people, the planet or significant portions of it are yours, right? 
uh, if you can find some way to survive. I mean, obviously, this is all silly fantasy stuff because in reality, it would just die of some terrible disease or get cut and it would get infected and I would die. Like, it's, you know, it's it's silly, but this is this is why this stuff appeals to me because in the in the books, it, you know, or in the movies or whatever, like very rarely did they show someone like, you know, stepping on a nail and dying from tetanus or whatever, like or right. get, getting infected or like the things that would actually happen to you, like or not not being able to find clean For wa- first book, you water. pick up your glasses break. Yeah, that's of all things that are going to have. That was always very silly because it's like you you can find more glasses. It'll be fine. Uh, but your real problem is like dysentery. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com slash diffs. Folks, listen closely. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and so much more. Uh, Maybe you want to create an online store, a portfolio, or a blog, gallery, whatever you want. They got you covered. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, and no upgrades are ever needed. You don't have to have any of that stuff to worry about. Squarespace is already worried about it. That's why they made it a site. It's called Squarespace. Look it up. They have award-winning 24 by 7 customer support. If you ever need any help, they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name and all of their beautiful award-winning templates, perfectly designed for you to show off your great ideas. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash diffs. Listen, I think you already know. I, I know whereof I speak. I'm a Squarespace fan. I've been with them for a very, very, very long time. I use Squarespace to host the Roderick on the Line podcast. I use it for all of my personal sites. And it's also where I uh, get a little little self-plug here. It's where I put my playlists. You can go to MerlinM.com slash playlists. They make that very easy. I just maintain my, my own file in, uh, in Markdown. I drop it into a little area, and boom, it's all up on the website. You don't have to use Markdown because you're probably somebody that like is, is attractive to the opposite sex, and, and, and people enjoy being with you. But if you're a nerd like me, boy, mm, chef kiss. Squarespace is right in the pocket for me. Now, listen, when you decide to sign up, you use the offer code DIFFS. That's D-I-F-F-S. That's going to get you 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain, and it will show your support for reconcilable differences. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash DIFFS, offer code DIFFS, and that gets you 10% off. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting reconcilable differences and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. This is not. This is. Um, this is not what uh, I'd anticipated, and I. I. I'm very interested in this. The. The other reason I brought it up is that uh, something Max Temkin is always bringing up. I think he read an article one time about how supposedly The Walking Dead is uh, especially popular in what, what we've come to call red states. That it is a. I don't think that's particularly true. I think it's true. Lots of it's popular. Lots of places, but that there's something in particular about apocalypse fiction that appeals to people who. Uh, have a beef with current society. I think one extreme, I suspect probably incorrect idea is like, oh, it's a show for preppers. But, you know, one ideological angle on this is that there's something about having this dehumanized subhuman class that you can unleash all your rage on uh, is is one yeah. theory. I think that was Max's angle and I can see where he's coming from that. But I, like, I, you know, I, when I think of who The Walking Dead appeals to universally, I think there's a definite appeal, definite appeal to traditional american manliness 
as in finally i can go finally i can defend my family like i know i i've been thinking about this i've been i've got a you know i've got a, a, conce- a concealed carry permit and i've just been waiting for the day that i can stop a crime and be the yeah, good guy and that your worth suddenly is going to be determined by more fundamental things that you can instead do. of all these it, subtle things you don't control yeah yeah like a, a less intellectual world a more brutal world where mm-hmm. And again, everyone who thinks that would all just be eaten by a bear along with me and everyone else, right? But you like to think of the idea mm-hmm. of like, uh, my boss is annoying. That's what to makes me. it a fantasy. And, I mean, n- n- very few people are sexually incompetent in their sexual fantasies, unless that's what their sexual fantasy is. <laughs> that's that's part. That's why they call it a fantasy. Yeah, and, and you don't you don't like those for people who who that appeals to you. Think my in my actual life, uh, it feels like. Uh, the my the things that I excel in are not valuable in my in my life. Like I don't, I'm not rewarded for them. Maybe yeah, I mean life's gonna be nasty. Life's gonna be nasty, uh, British and short, no matter what happens. But it's it's such a pity that all the stuff I really would excel at is so frowned upon by all of these. You know, I mean, and, and particularly types. if if you excel athletically, uh, it's, it can be very depressing. I can imagine if if. It's clear to you during your, you know, growing <laughs> you up. So few that, opportunities when you're working at the bank. You have so few can't, chances to catch a ball and then run a little. Yeah, but what if that's one of the things that you're really the best at? You're never right. going to be a professional. Like, it's not, you know, like you're not at that level. But it's like, in the grand scheme of things, one of the things I'm really good at. Right, somebody like even Eugene. Like, if you have the ability uh, to to make bullets and stuff, like, that that could be really but, useful yeah, to somebody. But, Maybe, yeah, even if you're not and, a Carol or a Daryl. Like, uh, you still have something that could really help the team. And, and I can, you know, you know how much I love evolutionary, uh, you know, explanations for things. I do. Uh, like, so being good athletically, historically, has been an important fitness criteria for your ability to pass on your genes. Like, through, through, through the history of humanity, if you can run fast or are strong or are coordinated, those mm-hmm. are skills that increase your chances of your genes being continue to be you, passed not on. only outrunning predators but you're able to defeat the kinds of things that could become Hunt food and for your family food and not trip and fall off a cliff and like it's, it's one it's it's a particular skill set that you can imagine being uh something that you know that that the world is selecting for by killing the people who are less good at it not universally because being smart is also a thing that you're going to select for but you know we we think of in all of human history it's we're just a bunch of dumb animals and then there's this real burst towards the end where all of a sudden we go from nothing to cities right and mm-hmm. we're living in that little nothing to cities part but over the long scheme the the human population probability wise has a lot of people who have athletic prowess but our current world does not reward that unless you are literally like one of the best in the entire world right. and else, like your thesis for a long time on for example glenn was well you know we've gotten past the point where all the easy or like the normies have kind of gone down at this point, these are hardened, you know, survivors at this point. These are people who yeah, made it through the they're, first they're shelter. The people, right. Cause the, like all everyone else died, you know, you, you live through the first round, like all these people in walking dead who are like, you know, immune or whatever. But the second and third and fourth rounds is just everybody dying from like being, you know, being stupid, not being able to outrun things, getting right. it cut and getting it infected. Like it, at a certain point, the only people are left. It's not dumb luck that they're, that they're still there. So anyway, with the Walking Dead being, uh, you know, something that appeals, yeah, but, to, but don't, to, uh, don't, don't cross Maggie. Yeah, <laughs> something that appeals. You don't want to get in her bad books. <laughs> p- 
people who feel that their skills are not appreciated in mm-hmm. their current jobs. And I bet there's a lot of them. And I don't think it's a red state thing. I just think it's just, and, and I think I'm thinking of men just because uh, American culture so rewards athletic prowess in adolescence. So how the Alexandria boys. guys survive that long? Like, how could you be uh, an incompetent no, no, alcoholic no, no, for like, that that's long? A, I think they're trying to say it was a brains versus luck of circumstance situation, like geography. Like they, mm-hmm. someone had the wherewithal to build the walls. And the knowledge to do it, and then it protected everybody else for a while. Like it's 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 thin. A lot of stuff. I mean, zombies are are a problem, as we've discussed in the past, anyway. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think the show has has that ha, appeals to that fantasy, and definitely appeals to the idea of rewarding people for a skill that they had and were massively rewarded for, perhaps in high school. Because if you're if you're okay good at sports, you are. If you're a, a you know a boy in America and you're okay good at sports, you are rewarded for that in high school, and then. After high school, unless you are a college, an elite college athlete going towards the professionals, nobody cares how well you can throw and catch and run anymore. Hmm. Like, it was great that you can keep in shape, but now you got to answer to your obnoxious boss at your bank job, yeah. and nobody You're working cares. For, working for Mr. Huff now. Yeah. What, and so, so is, is, is Ready Player One uh, Walking Dead for nerds? No. Ready Player okay. One is mostly a garbage fire, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm. uh, yeah, but th- th- this... Some apocalyptic stuff has appealed to nerds of like, you know, a bunch of esoteric stuff and now you'll be rewarded for that. But I think most apocalyptic stuff, even stuff written by nerds, recognizes that that's not enough. And your inherent the pro- the your problems as a nerd are <laughs> it's, not it's like Thor Ragnarok or it's like, you know, Planet Hulk, except with like uh, pub trivia night. Right. Like yeah, you're going to really be able to save the tribe with your knowledge of Doctor Who. Yeah, and, and all and all the things that make you unacceptable to society will still be liabilities, even when there's very few people left. The stand goes into that as well. Like, hmm. it, wherever you go, there you are. Right? Is this the, when you're referring, referring to the, is it the 90, 93, 94 TV show that you were talking about? I know the book is a very, very long book, but are you saying that it's, it's a, is that a good watch? The miniseries from 1994? No. Do not okay. watch any televised thing having anything to do with the stand. It looks Even like there's though, a new one coming. Oh, I dread it. I dread it. Mm-hmm. I don't. Please don't watch. Read the book. <laughs> do not watch any televised incarnation <laughs> of either the Dark Tower or the stand. Read the books. Please. The one with Stringer Bell? Yeah, it was sad. It was disappointing. It, yeah. it just, it's no, no. He's good with that gun. Good. He can shoot a real long way. It goes through stuff. No, they, it's a I hell mean, of a trailer. Was that was an adaptation screw up. I feel like there's, I, I didn't, it's obviously a difficult thing to adapt. And like they, they went through the same with Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings could have been a disaster in how they chose to adapt it. But I felt like for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, they found a way to adapt it that worked. For the Dark Tower, they found a way to adapt it that did not work. And so there will never be another one of those movies until they reboot it and try again, I hope. Hmm. Oh, that's a long book. 823 pages. My goodness. Uh, that's not the uncut one. That's the, that's the original. You want the uncut. Oh, is that right? I'll, I'll I'll check out the first ten minutes. Yeah, I don't. I mean, you don't. Do you read novels? Not anymore. Very often? No, not anymore. I read. If I read, it's usually nonfiction. Yeah, um, I suppose it could grab you and pull you through, but it is a giant book. I, giant books have always appealed to me and still do. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I was coming off reading Lord of the Rings as a single volume around the t- that time. Wow. Right. So, it, you know, I, I think the uncut one is one thousand one hundred pages or something like that. Uh, but it's a 1,100 page page turner, believe it or not. Wow. Like, or for, or for me, it was anyway. Cause it's Stephen King. It is not, it's accessible, right? It is. There's a reason he's a very famous author. The books go down easy and it had me hooked from the beginning. When, when I read it, I basically put the book down and like, I don't know if it was the next day, but maybe a day and a half later, I just started again from the beginning. 
Hmm. I started reading really? the book again. Yep. Read it, read it essentially twice in a row. Hmm. Had a big effect on me. So, um, who is doing or has done uh, your version of apocalyptic fiction? I mean, you've mentioned Stephen King. Are there any other instances, especially of TV shows and movies, that um, that you think get it? I like a lot of the short story stuff of various famous science fiction authors from before my time have done short stories that either deal with the end of the world or uh, around the end. Even the, even the Twilight Zone, Burgess Meredith thing, mm-hmm. like, I like those because they they don't have time to tell you the whole story. They just they want to have one clever, interesting aspect. Of the it's end funny of the you should mention that because the episode of um, uh, Random Random Serling is that the show Dan does uh, Dan W. Uh, the 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 one that I was on was another one of those. It's not a classic episode in in much of any sense, but it's a classic sort of trope, which is this guy who, like wishes the whole world would disappear. And like sort of straight up your alley. It's like his his job at the insurance company or whatever. Like there's nobody left in New York City. He's the only person in the city. Um, Does he enjoy it at first? Well, he enjoys it at first, but then Mm -hmm. he realizes he's going to be lonely. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to spoil it. (laughs) It's not a good episode. But he so he wishes there were people there, but they wish he wishes they were all like him. And and using the effects of the time, it's actually pretty great. Suddenly his office is full is full of people again, but using canny editing, the men and the women. People of all ages, everyone is him, and they're all mm-hmm. insufferable. They're <laughs> <laughs> really like very super, yeah. yeah but that's I, something that, that, Rod Sterling returned to. I feel like in many, from many different angles is the like, you know, just just in general, the like the the what happens, um, what happens when the strictures go away, or what happens when when the when the normal societal things we depend on go away. But it's not; it isn't uh, Ragnarok. But like something's happened where, like you know, all of the low bearing walls of society have gone away, and how do we pave? Even the leftovers had a little bit of that angle. I mean, I know it's not at the end of the world story. It was like a you know, it was even wasn't even like the uh, Avengers: Infinity War. What was the percentage? It was like twelve point five percent, or I think it was eleven percent. But no, it was precisely. I mean, you look at all the guilty remnant and all the different groups. It's like you look at how people whether they choose to want to or not end up having to try and make sense of what happened who's gone who's there and what it means and it doesn't take much to like it wasn't a reset button on the world but it was if you took away enough of the foundations enough mm-hmm. people are in free fall that it affects everybody yeah right you didn't yeah. take away the whole foundation of society like eventually things continue to function like the world didn't end like you still have cars and trains and airplanes and everything like that but you took away just enough mm-hmm. that some people didn't make it back to the world even though the world was still there which is part of what that show is about and it's not and it's not the end of the world story but like any any kind of story like that when you take away everything everybody's in that situation uh and depending on how many people you take away or what things you take away especially if you have an apocalypse where it's not like a safe world like nothing will ever grow again or it's much colder than it was before or it's much hotter or everything's flooded or you know like there's all sorts of sort of uh, debuffs in game parlance that you can add to the scenario to change the story and i i find all those endlessly fascinating short story long giant thing movies mm-hmm. tell, i will watch them and i watched that stupid netflix like how it ends thing just because it had the the premise was you know how it ends what they're talking about is the world how does the world end oh. go ahead show me show and it was terrible i don't not, do not recommend watching it mm-hmm. i watched the whole thing because i'm like I, I can't get enough of it. I, it is my genre weakness for sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what makes you think of this, but um, I really, I, I feel like that um, the, the, the nuclear 
The nuclear annihilation concerns were something I was at least even aware of as a pretty young kid, like in the 70s, something that really came to the forefront in, um, in the 80s. But really, um, really, you know, not so long before things settled down and glasnost and things like that, uh, you had the AIDS epidemic. Like, right, I mean, it, there was some overlap for sure, but like, you know, there's a reason to be pretty scared about everything in 1984. There were all kinds of reasons to be, to be very worked up. And in that case, back then it was like, what is this thing? Like, you, you can see this in, you know, even something like, and the band played on where they were like, we don't know what this is. We don't know how mm-hmm. it's being spread. We don't know if it's people snorting poppers. We don't know if it's from bathhouses. We don't know what it is. And, but we do know that it's very bad. We don't know how to treat it. And it's making lots of young, strong people die. And then by even 87, 88, you had seen a carve out of, I don't think this is too dramatic to say that like even, especially in certain um, geographical areas, but really let's be honest in certain kinds of areas where a bullion and a uh, very lovable uh, gay men in particular worked. You look at dance, you look at, vis- at visual arts. There's some areas that were just gutted over like a five year period. Like in some ways, like that's, I feel like that's another like thematic thread in some ways. First there was herpes. Oh yuck. Don't want that. But then what became HIV, what, and then what we came to understand was AIDS comes along. And that was, I really felt that hanging over my head. And I, I had a huge effect on how I thought about a lot of stuff, like well into the, like the late eighties. Um, but that was another one where like, you could see the apocalypse happening right in front of you. You could, you could see just the as as more and more you'd see those uh the the obits uh, piling up in like i think it was in the new york times i feel like village voice but like you just saw this and you're like oh my god I, again 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 like as, as first there was rock hudson and then it was like everybody and then you found oh no in retrospect this person actually didn't have a heart attack they had aids and i'm i'm not sure why i bring this up but that was another case of um, certainly not as germane in the thing that you're describing, but very much in the case of like, what, what would I do? Like what conversations would I have? There are a lot of people walking around who have this and are very, very sick and are probably going to die. And there was a guy I went to college with who we just watched die. There was a whole handful of people that had HIV at my college that I knew, but, um, yeah, there was one guy in particular and we just, he was this, just this real cool, nice guy. And, uh, uh I remember going over for dinner uh, with his housemates and they're like, well, we got to keep it down. Cause Jay's resting. It was like, Oh, I didn't realize Jay was here. It's like, no, just Jay's just always in the bedroom. And like, we we're helping out how we can, but like, he's just going to go away soon. And that was, that was right there. Like people in their teens and twenties were uh, afflicted with this. And, uh, I don't know, man. I, I, there, I do feel like I was talking to my daughter about this just even I think it was today while we were walking home and how some people are just naturally more anxious than others. Some people are very, uh, and she's getting to an age now where she really notices those things. You know, you know, you start, I, as a 50 something year old man can look at somebody and go, Oh, that kid's, that kid's got like a little bit of something like probably a little bit of depression, like definitely some anxiety. And we're just talking a little bit about pathways in the amygdala and how like PTSD is a thing. And I, I don't know where I'm blathering with this, except to say that I think there are things that happen to us, even in relatively affluent and happy lives, that pathway might be the wrong word, but I do feel like there are certain modes of thinking that become very difficult to shake, even after the actual threat of that thing happening has nominally gone away. You're you're still going to carry that around with you, whether that's a concern about safety with money 
or whether that's about your friends disappearing be, because of the person that they had intercourse with, like that, that kind of stuff just hangs over you and it, it can make you very susceptible to some fairly apocalyptic thinking. Yeah, I think every generation has, has a thing like that, whether it's a world war that happened during their time or whatever, like that, that lets them realize that this is a thing that can happen in the world in a more visceral way than just reading about it in a history book. Cause all sorts of, we, you know, we teach history in school and they learn all sorts of things that can happen, but it doesn't seem real and, until you, and so, so we had nuclear war, which I felt like was mostly taught to me through media because so much of it was about that. Um, but then like the AIDS stuff that was taught to me in school. Like that was the, the message that, um, eventually, by the way, uh, eventually. there's, yeah, for me, it caught. Well, you know, I, I, I'm just just to say again, this is I realize this is an HBO version of the I think Randy Schultz book, but just the whole idea of the like from the Reagan administration on down, all these people who are like, you know, we we can't even have this discussion. Just abstain. You know, the fact that these people are sick. Well, you know, that's too bad. That's really a shame. I hate that happened to somebody yeah, in my family. I, but. I grew up in a, in a very progressive place, and I'm, I was going to school later than you. So for mm-hmm. my education in this was always. 100% focused on like the if they could teach you one thing all they wanted to teach you in health class was this is relevant to you and you'd get the kids in the class who would argue like it's oh relevant, but it's no. relevant and it's real the idea of like in, in but, seventh but grade, I'm when not they... gay can, can I get it and it's like the, the, the entire class the entire year was spent yes you well, can it was it was everybody fu- fundamentally different from the sort of vague talk like I remember as a kid even in like old cartoons you'd hear about VD Right mm-hmm. or on, on Mac, yeah, and we have those units too. Again, herpes. So, you know. But I mean, that might as well have been like accidentally uh, becoming a circus clown. Yeah, like, I, about I, the I, VD, like what, yeah. what would I get VD from? So, like in this case, yeah, in this case, you're saying, well, this is something. This is like a one hit theory thing. Like one, one bad encounter. You don't even. Uh, that's you, it. You may, you're a goner. You're done. You're done. It doesn't. It doesn't matter whether you knew or didn't know or that person. But what if said, I'm married to them? Can I still die? Yes. Yeah. Even <laughs> even you. Even you. Even on Long Island, you can die. And that that was the lesson. That's all they wanted to teach us because it was like it was so counter to the entire culture, which in the '80s was this is you know uh, the gay plague. This is the only thing that happens to the bad people, but mm-hmm. you all will be fine. And our entire education being taught to us by authority figures was no. This can happen to you. And literally, I remember kids in the class arguing with the teacher about it because they'd been brought up in a household that believed that this couldn't happen to them. And so academically, we were taught that. Culturally, I was taught about the nuclear war. But in class, they weren't. They didn't have like we didn't do duck and cover like we weren't that generation. That was my parents' generation. Right. Right. We weren't. We didn't have any drills or anything related to nuclear. We didn't have the fallout shelters were there in the schools. Right. But we never went in them. I don't even know what they used them for. Like the signs were old and faded. The doors were closed. It was, becoming, like, it was, it was, it was increasingly less practical. Like all of this, you might actually end up. I mean, if you're going to if you <laughs> if you're going to survive, you're going to you're going to like uh, what do they say? Uh, pity the or like pity the living. You know what I mean? Like if you. Yeah. You, that, what we were taught was if we were too close to New York City. We'd be vaporized. Like <laughs> you know, there's no Cincinnati point. had a lot of milling. And yeah, it was we were like in that second tier. We weren't like Chicago or New York or L.A., but like we were up there. Yeah. So we, yeah, so that, so that was, but that wasn't taught to us in school. Like they had stopped trying to educate students about what to do in the case of nuclear war. Cause it was like nothing <laughs> you can do. Right. Uh, <laughs> don't, but, but don't worry your pretty little head. But for AIDS, they wanted to teach us specifically, this is relevant to you. Here's how it works. Here's what you can do to avoid it. That was like most of health class. It was drugs and AIDS, <laughs> drugs and sexually transmitted diseases. Right. Um, and, and I imagine the current generation, 
like the post 9-11 generation, like the thing that they have to have embedded in their mind is a thing that can happen is, you know, 9-11 style thing. Like, obviously, we had no, terrorism. School, school shootings are up there right now. Yeah, school shootings. Yeah, exactly. Like things that we could have intellectually imagined, but viscerally were not a part of uh, yes, they certainly like, weren't on the news with nearly the frequency that no, they are no, no. I, never in my school life did I think that anything like that would happen. I'd be worried about like well, you, you. You remember how shocking Columbine was? It wasn't. It was far from the first time that had ever happened. But Col- uh, Columbine, in particular, was really a moment where it was. It was so. It was so shocking, and we were really watching it happen. And then it seems like it never went away after yeah, that. Yeah, now it's just a, a weekly occurrence, right? And so, so yep. there's a generation growing up with that as a thing that you know. I, I'm looking out the window, thinking, when is the flash of light that is too bright to look at going to come? And then, how long do I have to count in seconds before I am literally vaporized? But I'm not <laughs> thinking someone's going to come through the door with a gun, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm thinking if I ever have sex, I'm going to die, because that's what I'm being taught repeatedly in hell class: sex equals death. Um, not that sex was a, a real concern of something that would happen to me in school, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but it's like Narcan. Like right now, they're trying to get Narcan into schools. And then, you know, the, the opioid thing is actually, I, I heard a stat the other day. I can't put my hands to right this second, but the number of people who are dying from uh, opioid overdoses is, I don't know, if it's not an order of magnitude, but it's much greater than the number of people that were dying. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make an equivalence here. But like for my generation, the AIDS epidemic was just shattering and overshadowed so much of my high school and college years. It was just everywhere um and we really felt that death toll like you could really see it but apparently the the opioid overdose doses are just off the charts right now and so they're trying to get narcan or this this, so basically it's the stuff i think it's an injection you give after somebody's had a suspected overdose and it can basically cops have it medics have it and it saves lives and they're trying to get it into schools but of course they're getting pushback because it's like well abstain it's like well it's actually way more complex than that for the same kinds of reasons we want planned parenthood hood to be around sometimes that wasn't some whorish woman that woman might have been sexually assaulted and like she isn't it her right to get rid of that baby or in this case like what if your kid took something they didn't know what it was and now your kid's gonna die even though they thought they were being a good boy like wouldn't you want that to be if you could prevent that from happening wouldn't you want somebody to break the glass and be able to do that it's just we haven't gotten the jesus on that in the same way that people got the jesus on aids in the 80s it's not there yet it still feels like you know this unsolvable problem that's a problem of character uh, or, you know, or birth control. I mean, obviously, the sex stuff is more ridiculous. Just abstain. Just abstain. Sex, you won't have sex, is not, sex is not an inherently harmful thing to have, whereas, you know, painkillers, abusing painkillers is, you know, we, we have explanations of why people come to it, but it's not a steady state that most people would like to be in by choice, right? Whereas mm-hmm. a steady state of sex is fine. People like that. It's good. Yeah. It's protection. Take that pill and hold it between your knees. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I'm glad I missed so much of that. Like, I'm glad that our... You missed growing up in the South. That was hell yeah, of a Our health education, <laughs> you know, it was comparatively progressive. Like, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't even think of, like, the, the non-progressive influence in my schooling were the other students, not the teachers, which is, you know, I'm, I, I realize now I've, I'm blessed to have had. Because, you know, the Especially, way... Especially, I mean, just the whole idea and, uh, you know... We're going to yell that, but, like, just the whole idea that, like, in order for the values that I have... However, I arrived at these bananas values that I have, these family values, like in order to do that, uh, it's important to me that we make sure the government withholds um, medical care from over half of the population. Like you're not allowed to, you, you like, you're not allowed to have a career. Like, because if you, if I, if I give you the opportunity to have control over your body, you know what? It's a good episode, John. Apocalypse. <laughs> 
Well, that's that's one that's one of the problems in the apocalypse is uh, birth control because oh, if, what you you don't, do? if you don't want to bring a baby into this post-apocalyptic world, but you still want to have sexy times uh-huh, uh-huh. with the, the remaining people on the planet, uh, you need to figure some stuff out. Welcome to my new village of just hand stuff. Ten. No babies here. <laughs> Welcome to Heavy Peddingburg. <laughs> It's not sustainable. <laughs> Sorry, it's not sustainable. It's not anything you learn from post-apocalyptic literature. Sure that's it not is. sustainable. Here in Buttstuffville. Yeah. Well, see how long you can keep that up. Well, it depends. I'm a pretty picky. People like to sit. Okay. That's that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs>